we will get to your accomplishments. We'll get to a few questions about the present and the future. There's always a future to be thought about. But I want to start with your formative years, where everybody, where we all started. And the reason I'm going to do that is not only because it affected all of your life, but because the greatest line in your book, your memoir, is the following from my point of view. I felt the tug of my mother's hope. Uh, tell me about your mother. It's always got to start there in your life. In a few words, if you can. <laughs> That's hard to do. Uh, but my mother is sort of the center of my life. And um, she was, I grew up in the first public housing project for black people in this country, University Homes in Atlanta, right next to the Atlanta University Center. Spelman College, Morehouse, Clark College, Atlanta University, and Morris Brown College. And that was just the proximity of our apartment to these institutions of higher education was in and of itself a great inspiration. So I began elementary school at Walker Street School in the first grade. The second month that I was there, my mother was elected president of the PTA. <laughs> she was the president of the PTA at every school I attended. <laughs> <laughs> and when my brother was at C.W. Hill Elementary School and I was at David T. Howard High School, my mother was president of both PTA. <laughs> so that was a lesson in leadership. Mm. You needed to be where the decisions were made. That's right. And I asked her once, I said, why are you president of the PTA? She said, well, two reasons. I think I can do something for my own kids, but I also think I can do something for all the kids. Right. And, and she was loyal and faithful and a leader and was strong. And I admired that. Um, you know what I love in that phrase, though, was the hope part, because looking back, it was, there was love and there was support and there were these great places, but it was a tough situation to be in for an African-American family, much less woman. And yet hope was one of those words that you immediately attached to her influence. Why was she so hopeful in the face of the world you grew up in? Well, because I think she had a positive view toward light. I mean, I can remember riding the streetcar to downtown Atlanta. And we would get on the streetcar on Fair Street, and we would go to the back of the car. And my mother would say, just because you're sitting back here does not mean the people sitting up front are better than you. She'd you're just as, Yes, said, you're that. just as good as they are. Mm -hmm. uh, and one day, we won't have to sit back here. Really? And she believed that, and she made me believe that. There, there, there was a big difference in my parents. Uh, my mother was a leader. She had a catering business. My father was a good, solid citizen who, who carried mail at Fort McPherson. Mm -hmm. Had I finished high school, gotten a job in the post office, 
married a nice girl, got a little white house with green shutters, a white picket fence, <laughs> kept my grass cut, my hedges trimmed, my car washed, my shoes shined, go to Sunday school, church, listen to the news, and vote. Mm -hmm. My daddy would have said, that's a pretty good life. And my mother's view of that was that that's not enough for this boy. That that's, he's, he's going to do things. So in my senior year of high school, I started applying to college. She sat me down and she said, now, wherever you go to college, there has to be an ROTC. I said, Mama, I have no interest in the ROTC. She said, it does not matter. Was the, <laughs> of no interest to her. Right. Yes, but wherever you're going to college, you are but wherever you go to college, you will join in the ROTC, ROTC. So I said, Mama, what do you know about the ROTC? She says, I don't know a damn thing about it. <laughs> she says, but the white ladies that I work for, they're sending their boys to the ROTC. And this is, get this. She said, there must be something to it. <laughs> <laughs> Extraordinary. Yeah. Extraordinary. That, 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 get this. There must be something to it. Now, my father had another. He was, a, he was a disciplinarian. When they took me to college. I'm not sure I want to let you go to college. Well, I'll do what you say. All right. <laughs> Uh, let's, let's not get to college yet, because right. there's just a couple more things I want to ask right. about the situation in which you grew, because that college okay. was a major departure in your life. Right. So, also, I love the fact that she wrote letters to you that she left on your bed, which is also a pretty amazing thing. But what I'm going to ask you is, why didn't you rebel? How come you were smart enough to know to listen to this woman? Well, I was taught to mind. <laughs> 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 that you, 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 that obedience was a part of the core of the Jordan family. Mm. The worst whipping I ever got is when on Saturday night before Easter, I could not recite my Easter speech. Really? Fifteen minutes after the whipping, I could have recited inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, did this coincide with your nature and what you were willing to listen to? Because your brother, who, of course, also had a, a good and successful life, but had a somewhat different personality in response to this. Yeah, my brother was my brother. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's really interesting. After church, I went to St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church every Sunday. Oh, I know that. The most important... <laughs> Part of that Sunday was the big breakfast, and then my brothers and I walked to Sunday school with my father, rain, shine. Every Sunday, my mother drove, and after church, we stood around and visited, and then Sister Fanny Green, Sister Mama Kemp always went home for dinner, right? Always went home. Well, at the gathering outside the church, some nice Christian sister would say, now, Sister Jordan, which one is the smart one? And my mother would say, all my boys are smart. <laughs> <laughs> she would not, she, she, she had a theory that a mother's love 
flows inexorably and indisputably to the weakest child. Mm -hmm. And so she protected my brother, mm -hmm. who is 17 months younger than me, and she protected my older brother. Uh, and, and so there was no smart one. Mm -hmm. And I guess my youngest brother may have some basis to feel some rivalry toward me, but because he was embraced by my mother in that way, he's my biggest fan. Wow. Well, that, I'm glad I pressed on that one. Okay. But I, I still, so no one, no one rebelled against this remarkable Yeah, word. now the letter, the most important oh, letter, yeah. I had applied to Howard University. I had decided that I was not going to to Morehouse College, and I decided not to go to Morehouse College because I was afraid had I gone, I would still be on the corner of Fay and Chester watching the girls from Spelman and Clark go by. <laughs> so I thought that I should leave. And I had been accepted at DePaul University in Indiana. And on the 15th of August, my birthday, my mother left the letter on the bed. And my mother, by the way, Mark called me man. Not the man. No, just man. man. She called me man, and man. there was a message in that. Mm. She called me man. Hmm. And so this letter said, dear man, we want you to go to college wherever you want to go to college. But if you go to Howard University, you may feel a little more comfort. You may be a little bit better off academically. Uh, and you might have a better time, because college is also about having a good time. Mm -hmm. But she said, we want you to go wherever you want to go. <laughs> right? And so I got home. I read my letter, and I went into the kitchen, and I said, I'm going to Greencastle. She said, we will take you. I said, no, I don't think that. Yeah, I can get there. I've been there once, so I can get there by myself. But they took me. They took me. Well, you are determined to go to college, but there's still one more question I've got to ask you. <laughs> and that is this, that uh, because at one point, and it was after you wrote that extraordinary memoir, uh, somebody interviewed you, and you said that one of the reasons you had written it was for your daughter, Vicki, because she and her generation, and no doubt subsequent generations, probably not just of African Americans, if anybody, is not going to believe what conditions were like in the South of your childhood. So I want to ask, because you so beautifully, and I'm, I recommend to everybody, they read this depiction. I recommend it too. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> they know you would, but I recommend it. But um, what I want to know is, because it does really tell this extraordinary tale of growing up proud and with ambition, but in an incredibly bizarre society in terms of its expectations for you, the, the wider South. And does any, can anyone believe it, Young, that, that you had a situation where you worked for a man who couldn't believe you read? I mean, that kind of um, universe, is that like talking about the moon these days? Yeah, but Mark, there's something you have to you have to understand, yes. and that is, if you went downtown, you encountered 
separate water fountains, the back of the bus, and colored bathrooms. But when you were on the west side of Atlanta, mm -hmm. there was a housing project, there were the colleges, there was a church, there was a Butler Street YMCA. So we, we, had, we had organizations. The St. Paul AME Church, I sang the St. Cecilia Choir. I went to choir rehearsal on Monday and on Friday. I went to Boy Scout meeting. It was organized, so mm -hmm. the church was a big part of that. The second part of that was the school. You went to school, you played ball, you went to Gray Y. So it was organized and organized by my mother. I went to the YMCA every Saturday. It's where I learned to swim, where I learned to box, where I learned public speaking. The Butler Street YMCA in Atlanta, the Butler Street Colored YMCA. That is where I saw A.T. Walden. That is where I saw Benjamin Mays. Mm -hmm. That is where I saw uh, <clears throat> James B. Brawley. That's where I saw Rufus Clement. Uh, these were very important, educated, talented 10th mm -hmm. Negroes. And, and John Wesley Dobbs, Maynard Jackson's grandfather, would come to my high school and Negro History Week, and William Holmes Borders the president of pastor of Wheat Street Baptist Church had a poem about I am somebody. Mm -hmm. And I knew it then, I don't know it anymore, but it, it, was, it was a source. Of, so I was not in this segregated situation saying, woe is me. Right, 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 right. I was in this segregated situation saying, I can do better right. than this. And A.T. Walden, Austin Thomas Walden, a University of Michigan graduate of 1912 would come to the Vesper Hour where I sang in the St. Cecilia Choir on the fourth Sunday at five o'clock. And he would speak about segregation. And he would say about segregation, I'll be glad when you are dead, you rascal you, right? So I grew up wanting to be a lawyer like Austin Thomas Walden. Mm. I wanted to talk like him, walk like him, dress like him, uh, and be a lawyer on Auburn Avenue like Walden. Although you had moments of thinking about being a preacher, too. Very brief moment. <laughs> <laughs> Very brief. So now why would you leave that world, of which it could be argued both Morehouse and Howard were an extension, to go all the way to, um, to DePauw and be the only African-American, as we would say now, in, in your class? Why leave that cocoon? Because I was secure enough. I, I've, you could take it with you, this, uh, yeah, and this I, world. For some reason, I was not afraid, mm. right? Now, mind you that the Sunday night that my parents were leaving me at Greencastle, they took me to Mahara Hall, left the station wagon on Locust Street, and walked me to, to the entrance of Mahara Hall. My brother shook my hand, rushed off to the car, happy that for the first time in his life, 
he would have the bed and the bedroom to himself. Right. Right? My mother, tears in her eyes, hugged me, slipped $50 in my pocket, and said, God bless you, son. My father shook my hand, looked me straight in the eye, and said, you can't come home. <laughs> and I said, what did you say? He said, <laughs> he said, you can't come home. And I said, what do you mean I can't come home? He said, the counselors said that your reading scores as compared to these kids who went to prep school and township high schools, and you went to an old dilapidated, segregated, overcrowded, double session colored high school, he said, their reading scores are much better than yours, but so that when they're in chapter six of history of civilization, you'll be struggling to get out of the preface. He said, but you can't come home. He said, in 1951, you used a plain geometry book that had been used by a white student in 1935, but you can't come home. He said, you're the only black in this class. But you can't come home. <laughs> and so I said, what am I to do, Daddy? He said, read, boy, read. Turned around and walked away. Wow. Four years later, I graduate. My brother slowly walks up to say congratulations, thinking that I'm coming back home. <laughs> she had a bed. A little my, worried. My yeah. mother hugs me, tears in her eyes. This time she gives me $100. <laughs> my father, with the same straight, serious face of four years ago, shook my hand, and he said, you can come home now. <laughs> oh. I'll never forget it. Oh, that's a yeah. poem. That's a yeah. poem. Now you, uh, again, at another point, described some of the experience. It wasn't the definitive part of this, but about being there, and then later at Harvard, some years later, as feeling a little bit that you were on display. What did you mean by that, and what does it feel like to be getting on with your life and on display at the same time? Well, if you don't have black in your class, when they had the first assembly after they left me at Meharry Hall, uh, and they introduced the class by state, well, I was the only fellow that stood up from Georgia. I mean, it was, it was quite something, because most of these kids were from Indiana, Illinois, right. uh, and Ohio, and so, that was all right with me that I was the only one. I, I never felt uncomfortable. In my freshman year, I had two roommates. They were both seniors. One from Valparaiso, Indiana, where there was one black family at the time, and the other from a little industrial town outside of Cleveland, Russ Foote and Roy Carlson. They'd never known anybody black. And they come to spend their senior year in 106 Longdon Hall, and there I am. And so we sort of existed in this 106 
room for about two weeks, three weeks maybe. And so I come home one night from the library and I walk in, I said, hi guys. And they said, we're talking about you. And I said, tell me about it. <laughs> and they said, we have made an amazing discovery. And so I said, tell me about that. And they said, you're no different than we are. And they were truly amazed. Huh? And they were yes. truly amazed. And they said, they said you, um, you go to sleep at the desk, you snore, <laughs> you sing in the shower, you grunt in the stall. I mean, <laughs> you, get, you get mail from home, you get cookies and cakes. See, you know, different than we are. So we stopped existing and we started living together. Now, what's, what's amazing to me yeah. is that you were able to embrace this discovery that you were a human being rather than think. Yeah, because they had a problem. I didn't. Right. Good answer. I see that. It, it, it was not. Wasn't your problem. No, it was not my problem. Was there any, without even belaboring what it was, any moments of ugliness as opposed to just incomprehension in those years? And Indiana itself was a borderland sort of state in terms of some of its attitudes, as you would find out later. But I, I never experienced in the ugliness. I do remember being in the beta house, drinking. And a senior friend of mine, he's a preacher somewhere, somewhere, came in to lecture us about the immorality of drinking. And I can see him now. He's got on his senior pants with, with all of your activities on it and uh, his V-neck sweater and his buckskin shoes, and he's given us this lecture about the immorality of drinking. And so when he finished, I said, John, now that you've given us the immorality argument of drinking, would you explain to my friends here why I cannot join this fraternity? I said, I can drink here, but I cannot be a member of this fraternity. And we will stop drinking when you explain that to us. Wow. We kept drinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I'm going to have to get you to Howard. But the one thing, Howard Law, but yeah. the one thing before I get you there is the one I know profound disappointment. I know this from you, the profound disappointment of not having been elected student body president. That was in high school. That was in high school, not that in was college. In, oh, no, that was not ah, in college. Ah. That was in high school. And I still haven't gotten over it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason why that, OK, thanks for correcting me. That the reason You probably weren't even going to consider doing that at DePaul. But anyway. Uh, I was treasurer of the student body at you DePaul. You were. And I was DePaul. on the city council. OK, well, that's because yeah. later on, you're not going to go I was a big guy at DePaul. You were? Yeah. yeah. I understand you were a string bean. But nevertheless, a big guy. Big you mean guy. a big man on campus. Big guy. But yeah, I was. 
Okay, I, now, <laughs> now I can't believe the string bean part either, but maybe that's uh, not something now, I should you, say. Do, do you want to hear the story about me being upset about losing the president? Yeah, I do. I was running for the presidency of the student body beginning in the eighth grade. And so <laughs> my mother was president of PTA. Why right. shouldn't I be president of the student body? Right. Right? And so by the time we got to the 12th grade, everybody assumed that I would run and that I would win. Many people out there will remember Lonnie King. Lonnie King went to Morehouse. He went to, came to Howard University Law School. And we had been competitors since he was in E.P. Johnson Elementary School and I was at the Walker Street Elementary School. And he was my opponent. I ran with <laughs> Ethel Waddell. She was a beautiful, very smart girl, and she was my vice presidential candidate. So they put signs all over the school saying, Vernon wants the job too bad, Ethel makes everybody mad. <laughs> so dirty, dirty politics. It was, it was negative campaign. <laughs> And there was this big assembly. Yeah. And I promise you that my speech into that assembly was the best speech in the history of high school <laughs> politics. I don't doubt that for a second. I, quote, I quoted Locke, Hobbes, Rousseau, <laughs> Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. <laughs> Booker T. Washington. <laughs> okay, I get every, it. I everybody. Get it. <laughs> My opponent didn't make a speech. He went down and played Begin to Begin. <laughs> Kill me. And then he came back <laughs> to the podium and he said, My mother can't be president of the PTA because she has to work. Fair enough. And then he said, the food in the cafeteria is bad. Hey, because that was the truth. Yeah. Hey, babe. Hey, babe. But it is better now because my party put brand new salt and pepper shakers in the cafeteria. You learned everything about politics now, that day. Remember, Adam Powell said, you have to have it in your hand. Yeah. They could put the pep salt and pepper shakers in their hand. It killed me. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can. I, I lost. Yeah. And my mother again. <laughs> I went home and I said, Mom, I, I lost the presidency of the student body. And she was tubing a cake. My mother was a caterer. She was right. tubing this wedding cake. And she never stopped. She said, best thing could have happened to you, boy. <laughs> and she, she kept tubing. I said, hey, mama, I lost the presidency of the student body, and you are tubing. Best thing could have happened to you. And I said, why? She said, you know, you were getting too big for your britches. Wow. Wow. She said, it's, it's, it's a good thing. Now relax and keep going. Okay, and, no, no more. I've right. got to get you into your career, okay? Career? All right. Yeah, 
Yeah. I got to get you to Howard Law. Okay. I got to figure out why you decided to go back to an African-American oriented college. So, I have an answer for that. Okay. Good. I suspected you do. Yeah. Your question. <laughs> My question is, why did you decide? To go to Howard? To go to Howard after you, I mean, you could have then. Well, number one, I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. Okay. That was clear. 1957, Howard University was the only law school in America that had courses in civil rights. That's saying something right there. Uh, number three, Thurgood Marshall went to Howard University Law School. Robert Carter went to Howard University <laughs> Law School. Bill Bryant went to Howard University Law School. Right. What else you want to know? <laughs> right, right. So you went. Oh, yeah. You, you uh, enjoyed it. You worked hard. Uh, I'm even going to get well, you. Well, just go ahead. On the work hard thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at DePaul, I was the only black in my class, and dating white girls in Indiana was not advisable. No, you know, it was just not wrong. And, and so I had to go to Indiana, to Earlham, to Oberlin to try to get a date. Uh, but when I got to Howard, <laughs> it was wonderful. <laughs> it, it, it was, it was. So you didn't work hard. I did work hard. I did work hard. And I loved my time at Howard. I, I loved it. The first year I lived in Carver Hall. The second two years I, I had an apartment at third, at, at third and T. And I walked up that hill to Fourth Street to Howard University. I loved it so much that I would go to class early just to see James Nabrit walk into the classroom. He was such a great teacher. And, and, and George Johnson taught me taxation, federal taxation, state taxation. Um, Jimmy Washington, who's now gone, taught me civil procedure. And he taught me federal jurisdiction. He taught me about standing. You had to have standing to bring a lawsuit. Mm. And uh, some ladies in the church were critical of me one time in my mother's church. And they called my mother and said, we don't know about Vernon Jr. And so my mother was not nice to him. I said, mother, why were you not nice to him? She said, Vernon Jr., they had no standing. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I, I loved Howard, and I still love Howard. And the one great advantage right. of being at Howard, other than Thurgood Marshall coming in your freshman year saying, with tears running down his eyes, this is Charlie Houston's law school, mm -hmm. right? And then they're arguing, doing the dry run for some case in the Supreme Court. 
and you sit through the dry run, and then when they take a break, you stand as close as you can to Bob Ming and Bill Coleman mm -hmm. uh, and Don Hollowell to see what they talk about in the break. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was all preparation to go back to Georgia and, and practice law. The other wonderful asset for me was that I drank a lot in law school. Every Saturday night, there was a party somewhere. But every Sunday morning, I was in Rankin Chapel. I was in Rankin Chapel because it was Gardner Taylor, or Howard Thurman, uh, uh, Kelly Miller Smith, some great preacher. And so I was there. And every year now, for the last almost 20 years, I speak at Rankin Chapel. Mm. Right, so <clears throat> there's, there's this legacy. That, if you think about the original Andrew Rankin Chapel, when the choir sings, it's facing Washington. And you get the feeling after having heard Mordecai Johnson carry on for two hours that the choir is singing <laughs> to all of Washington yeah. and that it's listening. And that it's listening. Yeah. You also uh, found your wife there. My first wife. Your first wife, yes, of yeah. course. Uh, yeah, she was a senior. And I was, I was a, a first-year law student, first-year law student, and I told her, on the steps of the library, that if she would, you know, give me a little time, that, and attention, that that one day I would be somebody, <laughs> and she fell for it. <laughs> Although. And then she, passed, then she passed away, and I said the same thing to I, Anne, and she fell for it. <laughs> but there was less guessing with Anne. Huh? Uh, there was less guessing for Anne than for Shirley. What do you mean by that? Because by the time you met Anne, you were somebody. Well. By the time you met Shirley. But I still had to convince her of that. <laughs> <laughs> so you both decide to move back to Georgia. I know she, had a, she went a little bit earlier. You married yeah. before you finished. But you were going to go back to Georgia. Now, again, in that sort of wide-eyed stance that I'm taking, why did you decide to go back to Georgia rather than stay in the North? Because I went to law school to go back to Georgia. Okay. Tell, me, tell me about I, that. I went to law school to be a civil rights lawyer. Right. And I wanted to go back where the problem was. So I finished Howard on a Friday, first Friday in June. Monday morning, I was in the Atlanta Municipal Courts working for Donald L. Hollowell, mm -hmm. the then civil rights lawyer in Atlanta, for the grand sum of $35 a week. Mm -hmm. And I was a happy guy mm -hmm. because we were getting all those students, Marion Wright Edelman and Benjamin Brown, we were getting them out of jail. That Monday morning after I finished law school, six months after I finished law school, I was escorting Charlene Hunter through the mobs at the University of Georgia. In January, ran a summer suit in the wintertime, and I didn't get cold. <laughs> uh, I mean, because it was, I was doing what I went to law school to do. So you, you knew your career from that point was going to be in the civil rights struggle. Yeah, yeah I had a little... Diversion. 
in my sophomore year in college, I was sent to Union Theological Seminary to a conference on the ministry designed for men who were pursuing other disciplines, but whom others, religious professors, philosophy professors, ministers, counselors, thought ought to be exposed to this conference on the ministry. So I took the James A. Riley train from Indianapolis to New York, my first time in New York City. I stayed at Union Seminary, and for a week, I listened to Paul Tillich, Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, James Robinson at the Church of the Masters, uh, uh, George, the uh, pastor of then of Riverside Church. I listened to all these great preachers. And it was before I'd had the basic course in philosophy and mm -hmm. stuff. And I was quite taken by it's easy to be taken by Reinhold Niebuhr and Paul yeah. Tillich. Right, right. And I was taken by that, and I viewed myself as some neophyte intellect. And so I went back and took all of these philosophy courses. And so in my senior year, I applied to law school, but also applied to seminary. I applied to four seminaries, Drew, Garrett, Boston, and Perkins Theological Seminary at SMU, who immediately wrote me back saying, we teach Jesus, but we don't teach blacks. They, did they write that? In effect. In effect, so we, yeah, yeah. You, you, you. yeah, yeah. And then <clears throat> I graduated and in the summer of 57, and I went to Chicago where I drove for the CTA, Chicago Transit, I drove the bus. And in the middle of the summer, I wrote to Garrett, Drew, and Boston, and I said, gentlemen, I have spent the summer trying to figure out whether I was going to spend my life at the altar or at the bar. In the process, I've discovered sin, and I like it. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to law school, <laughs> and, and I think that was the best decision for me and for the church. <laughs> now, to go back to my mother. Yeah, always. When I was a kid, I made the best Easter speech. I won all of the contests, oratorical contests. I was pretty good at that. And so Sister Fanny Green, who came to dinner every Sunday or so, one Sunday said, Mary, talked to my mother, Vernon Jr. is going to be a preacher. And my mother said, no, Vernon Jr. is not going to be a preacher. And Sister Fanny Green, especially after the second drink, was pretty, <laughs> pretty forceful. She said, Mary, Vernon Jr. is going to be a preacher. He says that Easter speech, he wins these contests. He's going to be a preacher. And she said, Fanny, 
no son of mine is going to spend his life kissing the bishop's ass. She said it that way. She said it that way, and she meant it that way because she understood the hierarchy of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, right. and she understood the hierarchy of the Methodist Church and what you have to do to be bishop. And that was the first time I had ever heard her curse. Wow. And she said it, and I was stunned by it. <laughs> but I also knew I was not going to be a preacher. <laughs> <laughs> and when I went through this process in, in 1955 and 1957, mm -hmm. thinking about it, yeah, yeah. she did not discourage me. But I think she knew where I was going to come out. Now, you have got a lot of life for us to get through, so I'm going to get to that extraordinary period that you were a, a young lawyer in the South mm. and put it in the strange way, again, I know it from you, and that is that you disappointed your father-in-law profoundly because you couldn't hold a job. Now, that was his view of what your actual approach was. Tell me your view of it because you took a number of jobs in this time. What, were, what was in your mind? Yeah, what upset him most was when I left the Southern Regional Council where I was Wiley Branton's assistant. And I was counseled to the Office of Economic Opportunity, the poverty program. And I was probably the first black GS-14 in the South. Hmm. And for that job, Sergeant Shriver hired me in the bathroom at 19th and M, which is where the poverty program was, but he was changing to go, he was running both the Peace Corps and OEO, oh. and he was changing to go to a Peace Corps dinner, and he said, I have to interview you while I shave. And so I never forget it, at 19th and M, in the bathroom with Sergeant Shriver, hiring me as he shaved, right? <laughs> and, and so, I went and did the poverty program. And um, it was fun to do. Yeah. And Good, solid thing. Your father would have been proud of you at yeah. GS-14. GS-14 in the government. In the government. And so I went there for supper, and I said, Mr. Yabra, Mr. Yabra, I want to tell you that I'm quitting my job with the federal government, my father, I mean, my father-in-law, he went nuts. He said, what? He said, you get paid every two weeks. <laughs> and you're going to be paid every two weeks. And I said, Mr. Yarbrough, I don't think you understand. I want to go back and succeed Wiley Branton running the Voter Education Project because we're going to have a lot of money from the Ford Foundation, from the New World Foundation, from the FIO Foundation, from the Rockefeller Foundation to get black people registered to vote, and that's what I'm going to do. He said, you can't leave this government job. Right. But if you think about how he grew up in the segregated oh, sure, South, of he was a Pullman porter. The Pullman, that's how he sent his two girls to, to college with tips on the train, and then that went by the wayside. So he was a chauffeur. And so here his son-in-law with this steady 
government job is gonna quit to go run something having to do with voting, it did not make any sense to him. Right. And so he said, well, you, you just cannot, I said, I don't, I, so I had to explain to him. Right. It did not matter what he thought. This is what I had to do. Which you said to a number of people across your, your life. Um, now, how old are you at this point? Uh, when you take the voter? How am I? This is 19, I'm 30. 30. Now, by now, you're already known. You have gotten some pretty good jobs with high responsibility. You've made this next decision to go do the, the voter registration question. Um, are you thinking to yourself, my ambition is to get to such and such a place, or are you just responding as things happen? Yeah, I'm gonna tell you something that you won't believe. I've not applied for a job since I applied to be a bus driver with the Chicago Transit Authority. And because of my mother, every job that I had, I concentrated on that job. And I never had a job where I was looking up for the next job. Really? That's the truth. Because my mother told me a long time ago, she said, boy, man, <laughs> just, just tend to your garden. Just tend to your garden. And don't you worry about anybody else's, just tend to your garden. And she said, what you have to understand is that the moment you look up to check out your neighbor's garden, it's that very moment when the bow weevil will get into your garden. <laughs> so she said, just tend to your garden. And that's been my That's what I've done. And so I did not go to Lazard because I applied. Lazard called me up. But it, no, I, I know that's true, and, and yeah. we'll get there. But in the terms of the philosophy of it, yeah, um, there are certain points in your life where you are making decisions that you don't have to make. I mean, about uh, they're leaving one place, now somebody's offering you something else, and that's when you're deciding. But there's a later point, I know, and we'll get there, when you decide after more than a decade um, that you are gonna leave the Urban League and Yeah, but that was also consistent with plan. I told Louis Martin, a great American, unsung, unheralded, who was the chairman of the search committee of the Urban League. I said, Louis, 10 years. You said that? I said, 10 years. I, I don't know what's next, but 10 years. Now, I was shot in one year, and I quit the next year. And so some people would like to say that I quit because I got shot. Well, if I was going to quit because I got shot, I wouldn't have gone back. Right, 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 right. Well, before we get you shot, one of those tragic moments in your life, I actually want to talk about another personal, not setback, but cross to bear, which was your, your first wife's diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. That happened 
fairly early on. I mean, I know Very by early. then you had a daughter, Vicky. Very, yeah. But um, she was young, 28, 29, yep. when she yep. got that. Yeah. So um, at those moments, you don't seem like a man easily discouraged. Was that must have been a fairly that discouraging was, moment. Yeah, that was, that was very tough to see this young, smart, beautiful girl who was a social worker in the Fulton County Department of Welfare being told that she had multiple sclerosis. And when the doctor told me what it was, I was on the way to the airport. And I came to Washington, and I went to Wyler Branton's office. And he had this big dictionary, dictionary, and I looked in that dictionary, and that's when I find out, found out what multiple sclerosis really was. And so we are confronted with a crisis, my wife, my daughter, me. And so I do what I've always done in a crisis. I went to my mother. And I can see her now sitting in her canopied bed. And I'm in this chair. And I went in, shoulders drooped, and I said, as I sat in the chair, I said, I want to ask you a question. And I said, why is this happening to Shirley? Why is it happening to Vicky? Why is it happening to all three of us? But I said, Mama, the most important question is, why is it happening to me? Right on the verge of my bulging career. And my mother said to me, she says, man, the Lord don't give you no more than you can tote. That's your load, now tote it. Anything else you want to talk about? <laughs> and that made a difference for you. I mean, you, you I heard went that. in drooped and yeah. I walked out straight because I understood what I had to do. And, and that was to take care of my family. Your family, indeed. And, uh, and I did that, and I did that at some cost to my friends because they said, that, that Vernon, he doesn't, he doesn't talk about his problems. Uh, that he you, wouldn't, you wouldn't uh, share this, this sadness with them? You know what? We had to eat. I had to work. Vicki had to go to, she was going to private school. Uh, so that was the most important thing, to right. take care of what was before me, right? right? I had great support from my in-laws, my parents, all of that. But the primary responsibility was my, that's your load, son. Right. Now, tote it. Right. And, and I think that's what life is about. I, I'm going to ask you something that may or may not relate to that. You, you tell me, and if not, we'll pass on. Uh, the... You described yourself on occasion and written it as well that you're a loner. Now, it's a word you've applied a number of times to yourself, not here, but elsewhere. Uh, you are somebody very much engaged in the world. You have 
many friends, you have social connections, you understand friendship, you understand all of this. That's been a core of your being. And yet you're a loner. Tell me what it means to think of yourself as a loner. Well, most things in life you've got to figure out for yourself. And they are, there is a small group of friends with whom you can share. And that is based on trust and confidence and, and friendship. And <clears throat> I have never been one to bear my soul. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think Lona may be taking it too far. I just, I respect your privacy and I, and I harbor my own. Um, and whatever that inner frustration is, I share with Ann, because mm -hmm. she's my partner right. and my friend right. and also my wife. Yeah, yeah. Um, so being a loner is not being alone. No. Maybe even the opposite. Yeah, but it, 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 it does not mean that you go to the fraternity house and say, hey guys, I got a problem. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah. Uh, it's a tradition of keeping your own counsel that's evaporating in our culture in general, where everybody seems to say everything to everybody, but it's a... It's yeah, a, everybody talks too much in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, I'm not even gonna let you spend much time at the United Negro College Fund, which you were in for a year and I know we're committed to. I was there for two years. Two years, two years. Uh, but then, um, uh, again, through a kind of circumstance, tragic really, you found yourself uh, at the Urban League. Can you describe that moment and that decision point for you about whether to do that? Louis Martin called me up and he said, he was chairman of the search committee, and he said, we want you to come down here on this day certain to meet with the search committee of the Urban League. And I said, what time? He said, noon. I said, I can't come. He said, why not? I said, I'm speaking at a luncheon for the United Negro College Fund in Rochester. He said, cancel it. I said, I'm not gonna do that. Mm -hmm. I said, I'm running the college fund. I made a commitment. And he said, but we wanna talk to you about the most important job one of the most important jobs in the country. I said, I have the most important job in the country. That was a good answer. And so he said, I'll make a deal with you. Why don't you go to the luncheon, speak before they eat, and then leave, and I'll send a plane for you. I said, deal. <laughs> and so I made the speech and got on the plane and went to the Waldorf and, and met with the search committee. And there was this playing around with the various members of the search committee. And somebody asked me, why do you want this job? I said, I didn't say I wanted the job. <laughs> you asked me to come here to have a meeting and I'm here to have the meeting. Right. 
And so that went on for a little while. And, <laughs> and finally, Louis Martin says, let's cut to the chase. And he said, we're offering you the job as executive director of the National Urban League. I said, why'd you say that? I accept. <laughs> Just like that. Yeah. <laughs> it, that's the truth. And I accepted. I had no idea what the benefits were. I had no idea what the salary was. I knew nothing. What I did know, that if I had said no, I would have regretted it for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And so I said yes. And I left the Waldorf Astoria and walked to Grand Central Station. And I went to the bar because I had 30 minutes to wait on the next train. And because you weren't a preacher. Uh, that's right. <laughs> and I needed a drink. <laughs> and, and I'm sitting on the bar, and Roy Wilkins and Minnie Wilkins come by. And Roy came to me, and he said, the word is that you are the man to succeed Whitney. And he said, you know, and you've known for some time, that you are my successor. And then he said, but I am not ready to go. <laughs> and you have a decision to make. And I didn't tell him where I had just left. And I had a lot of respect for Roy Wilkins. When I was Georgia field director of the NAACP, I would pick Roy Wilkins up at the Atlanta airport, drive him to Macon, Georgia, two-hour drive, and I'd drive him back after the mass meeting. And I would do it to Columbus, Georgia, to Augusta. And I had all these visits with him that were like postgraduate courses. I mean, here I am at 25 with Roy Wilkins in my car. Just me and Roy Wilkins, that's, that's a big thing. And I would just drive and talk and listen and learn. And I would did it with Clarence Mitchell. I did it with Gloucester Current. Uh, and those were invaluable moments in my growth and development. I can remember riding a train from Washington to New York with Bayard Rustin. And I just listened uh, with A. Philip Randolph. And I asked questions and I listened. And all of that has stood me in my career in good stead. Now, there are two other very important I want to write a book, another I was hoping. book about mentoring. Ah, ah. And I want to write about the mentoring I got from Roy and from Louis Martin and from Whitney Young and from Kenneth Clark, uh, from Don Hollowell and Wiley Branton. I've been very fortunate because mm -hmm. they pushed and pulled Bob Carter. But Howard Thurman, is a, uh, is a spare, very special preacher in my life, as is Gardner Calvin Taylor. Mm -hmm. 
whom I spoke to yesterday. Uh, but Howard Thurman gave the eulogy, a eulogy at Whitney Young's funeral. Benjamin Mays gave the other. I had met Howard Thurman at DePaul University and went up and shook his hand, but I knew all about him. And I wanted to call him right after I took over from Whitney, but it took me a year. And one day, I called him. And I said, Dr. Thurman, this is Vernon Jordan. And he responded, what took you so long? <laughs> <laughs> and for years, I would go to see him at 2020 Stockton Street, and he had a rule. Two hours, preferably three, and no telephone calls. And he was a theologian, he was a preacher, he was a philosopher, but he was also a mystic. So when his wife Sue answered the door, she would usher me into his study. And Howard Thurman never entered a room, he never walked into a room. He always appeared. <laughs> and I would sit there and talk to him from 9 o'clock to 1 o'clock. And it was extraordinary. Gordon Taylor, for 25 years, I've talked to almost every night. And when I was going to testify before the grand jury a few years back. There was a little something going on in town. <laughs> and <clears throat> every night before I went to the grand jury, Gordon Taylor would call about 10 o'clock. And he would say, Vernon, let us pray. And he would instruct the Lord. He would say, Lord, Tomorrow morning, Vernon has to go before the grand jury. And I want you to put your long arms of protection around him. And I want you to go with him and stand by him and prop him up on every week and lean inside. That's mentoring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to ask now some big questions because there's not enough time to go through every element of this amazing life you, you are leading and continuing to contribute to. Um, we can start by that half joke, and that wasn't a joke about the student, student body um, election that didn't work in high school, and go to a more serious question, which is pretty much you decided at a few critical points not to be a politician in the classic sense, not put yourself up for office, not join the government, in a formal way, uh, and as a result, people often very much with admiration, but sometimes not say, well, he is a power broker or a Washington insider as opposed to an elected or appointed official. Well, he's a fixer. A fixer, yeah. a fixer, okay. Yeah. So tell me about that decision or how it happened that you definitely decided not to take the kind of the formal roles in the government. In 1969, in the fall of 1969, uh, at a party on the north side of Atlanta, 
Jimmy Carter got everybody's attention and announced for governor. And after he finished, I got everybody's attention and announced for the fifth congressional seat for Congress. Uh, a week later, or maybe two weeks later, I was offered the job at the college fund. And I just concluded that there were a lot of guys and women who could run for Congress, but they were only asking me to come to New York and run the college fund. Mm -hmm. And so I essentially said, I'm out of here. And I was never sure that I was serious, but I thought Jimmy Carter should not have the floor to himself. <laughs> and, so, and so I sort of I got in it. And, and that's as close as I ever came to, to um, even considering running for elected yeah. office. Yeah, and then Billy Stern, who was the chairman and CEO of the Trust Company of Georgia, and he came to see me after he heard I was coming to the college fund. And he came to my office and he said, Vernon, you can't leave. We need you in Atlanta and you have to stay here. And so I said, now Billy, if I stay, Will you put me on the board of the trust company of Georgia? He said, I can't do that. This is 1969. He right. said, you know, I can't do that. I said, well, I can't stay. And then Whitney Young called me up and said, you have to take this job. He said, you will love Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> and he really encouraged me to take the job. And and the interest in the job stemmed from, in June of 1969, I had been offered the presidency of Dillard University. And uh, if you remember, in 1969, colleges were not looking for presidents, they were looking for truant officers. Yeah. And that didn't, and exactly, it didn't exactly appeal to me, but right. Albert W. Dent, who was the president to be succeeded at Dillard, was also the president of the college fund. And so he told the search committee, he didn't take Dillard, but offer him the college fund, they did. And that pretty much ended whatever political ambitions I, I had. Um, and so you had other, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, you had other opportunities, and maybe not choosing to run for office or taking a formal political position, but you were, you were head of Clinton's transition team. Um, yes. And I just know somebody was saying to you, which of the important cabinet positions would you consider? Yeah, I'm trying to not be self-serving here, but yeah. Please, please. I mean, I'm, I'm here to make you self-serving. Yeah. 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 The president offered me uh, an opportunity to be in the government. Right. And uh, I told him that, that, that I was happy at Aiken Gump. Not hesitating. No. No hesitation. Tell I me think why. Ann and I talked about it uh -huh. a little bit. And Ann said if I, she had to, she would go to work. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we, 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 we made the right decision. So I went to Little Rock as chairman of the transition. Right. And said to then Governor Clinton, then Governor Clinton, that while I appreciated all of the publicity about me coming into the government, that I had made a decision 
not to do that and that I hope my decision would be respected, and it was. I left Little Rock and flew to Atlanta where my mother was in Wesley Woods in a nursing home where she'd had a stroke. Mm. And she could understand, but she could not communicate. Right. So I grabbed her hand mm. and I said, Mama, Governor Clinton offered me an opportunity to serve in his cabinet. Yes. And Mama, I said no. And she did my hands just like that. <laughs> and what she was saying was, that was the right decision, boy. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, tell me why it was the right decision. Well, it was the right decision for a lot of reasons. I liked what I was doing. Right. I loved practicing Lord Aiken Gump, Strauss, Howe, and Fell. Also, I was a real friend to the president. And, and I thought I could best serve him outside of the government than inside of the government. I also believe that when you raise your hand, yeah. that you give up a little bit of your independence. Right. And I was not willing to do that. Right. And I did not think that I had to do that to be helpful to the administration or to be a good citizen and be helpful to the country. Okay, that's... And I have no regrets. No regrets. We're coming to the end of the time and there's so much I want to ask you, but there's one thing I've got to ask you um, toward the end, not about your career, but uh, about our situation in the country today. I mean, you have seen these amazing, amazing developments over time. You've been a big player in a lot of those developments. One point I read that you said that uh, the challenge of the 21st century is really whites and blacks working together as equals toward the future. And we're now at a very unhappy moment. There's a tragic situation that happened in Florida, death of a young man, this recent event in uh, Tulsa. Uh, those aren't the only things happening in this country, and we have to keep perspective, but do you look at that and the time still when an African-American is president, when there have been extraordinary, extraordinary changes, improvements since your day, how do you look at all and assess the state of the connection uh, between these two races and actually the Latinos and the Asians too. This is the America of the 21st century. Does this worry you? Does this give you pause? Does, do you still have your mother's hope? I, uh, I, I have survived almost, I'm, I'll be 77 in August. And, and I think I have survived because, in part because I have a, positive outlook about life. I am fundamentally an optimist, and I think I survived the South and was able to do what I did because I had a positive attitude toward life, that it can be better. But to your question, I'm reminded of uh, Wilcox County, Alabama, 1965. The Voting Rights Act had been passed, 
and it's the first day of voter registration in Wilcox County, Alabama. The federal registrars are there in the county courthouse. The first day, some 3,000 voters show up, and this 90-year-old black man dressed in his Sunday best shows up to register. He didn't make it to the registrar's desk on Monday, but he did on Tuesday. And in the process of registration, the registrar asked him his age. And he said, I'm 90 years old. And the registrar, simple-minded white man, said, well, what took you so long to get here? And the old man said, I've always had a philosophy of life that says, to never get in the way of trouble or coming. And so the registrar asked him another question. He said, well, why are you here today? And the old man said, I'm here today because trouble ain't a coming like it used to did. Mm. And trouble a coming was economic sanctions, you could get shot, you could lose your property, they could cut off your mortgage. But the Voting Rights Act took that away. And so if we think about the voter ID laws, it is trouble like it used to did. If you think about the immigration, it is trouble coming back. Uh, if you think about Sanford, Florida, it is Emmett Till revisited. Yes, that's what it feels like. And so <clears throat> it's, a, it's a very trying time. And police departments are really stupid. All they need to do is put this guy in jail and people would feel a little bit better about this system of justice. But I'm still optimistic. I still believe, number one, that Obama is going to be reelected. <laughs> I don't think. The Democrats can take anything for granted. There is, the Republicans don't like him, but they like Obama less. They don't like Romney. Romney, yeah. And he's gonna be the nominee. They don't like him and they, they're not sure that he is their man. But if there's a choice between him and Obama, Obama loses. But I think I think his re-election is more important than his election because this country is about not affirmation but reaffirmation. Mm -hmm. And so I and I think I think he's earned the right to be reelected. And if he is measured by the same measurement that 43 was measured by, <laughs> he ought to be reelected. <laughs> So 
the wine. So that's the basis of your hope that we've gotten a distance. There's some back uh, movement, but that the, the, in general, the momentum will carry us in, into a true 21st century situation? There is no choice. There is no choice. There is, there is no choice. Uh, what's the song says? We've come this far by faith, leaning on the Lord. That has got to be the last word. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>